morning's scripture reading is uh, taken from Exodus, the seventh chapter, verse 14 through the eighth chapter, verse through verse 19, and this is uh, the English Standard Version. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, Behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, 
over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it became gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. So we're doing something a little different this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into it. God and Father, I just pray as we hear from your word and reflect on your greatness that you might turn our hearts ever towards you. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Amen. So we've been preaching through the book of Exodus, and typically we, when we preach through books of the Bible here. We read like a half a chapter or a chapter. But this morning, um, already that was a longer-than-usual reading. Thank you, Bob, for doing that. And really, we're going to be covering all of Exodus 7 through 11. But um, I'm having mercy on the liturgists and on all of us by not having us sit through the entire reading, because this is the text that kind of tells about these ten plagues that God brings on Egypt. But because we're covering all of that, before we dig into some things we can learn from it, I just want us to feel the story. So Moses has come to Pharaoh and demanded that... Egypt release Israel from its slavery and let them go out into the wilderness and Pharaoh has said no and in fact leading up to this he's struck out at Israel and made things much worse for them and this is the point where God throws down with Pharaoh 
And so he brings these plagues. I'll put a list of them up on the screen to help us follow along. But first, as we heard this morning, Moses goes out to Pharaoh, and um, Pharaoh's out by the Nile, maybe for morning prayers or something, and God strikes the Nile and turns the water to blood. And just for each of these plagues, just get past the words and feel the weight of that, right? This, this river, this great river that runs through Egypt is crimson and viscous. I mean, it's literally blood, right? It's got the metallic smell and the rotting stink and the dead fish floating to the surface that you would imagine happen. We're told the Egyptians have to dig down into the sand trying to find groundwater, right? Just so they can drink. But Pharaoh's heart is hard. So a second plague comes. Presumably, it says a week's passed, so probably water is washed down from up in Africa and kind of dissipated the blood. But now frogs come swarming out of the Nile. Millions of frogs everywhere, underfoot. You're walking around and they're crunching under your feet. And Pharaoh pleads with Moses and God strikes them dead. Um, It says the Egyptians there had to shovel them into piles and the land reeks from their decomposing. But Pharaoh's heart is still hard. And this pattern continues, right? So gnats, little biting mosquito-like insects, hordes and hordes of them darken the sky, and they're everywhere, all over people's skin. And then maybe it's flies, or maybe it's just insects more generally. The Hebrew word could include, like, spiders and beetles and things, but they're swarming across all the land. And then Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart, and a great plague hits and kills many of the Egyptian livestock, but Pharaoh is still hard. And that's really where things start turning, and we should appreciate how brutal the story starts to get, right? Up to now, this is gross, right? Frogs and gnats, but it's kind of bearable in the long term. But with the livestock, things start to get serious. So the Egyptians themselves are afflicted with boils, right? With these bruising sores all over their body. And then hail falls, unbelievable amounts of hail for days that kills more of the livestock And the flax and barley in the fields. We're told the wheat was spared because it's too young. We're told that because then the next plague is locusts. It's it's grasshoppers, right? Darkening the sky and stripping every plant and tree bare in Egypt. Um, And Pharaoh keeps saying, okay, I'll let Israel go. And then he changes his mind after the plague is gone. And if there's any doubt left that these are supernatural events, the ninth plague is darkness. The sun and the moon and the stars are blotted out so that so much so we're told people who go outside without a light can't even navigate. They're bumping into each other and tripping and falling. And then comes the threat of the final plague, which we will especially look at next week, but the death of the firstborn all across Egypt. That story might be familiar to you, right? That's one of those famous biblical narratives. If you went to Sunday school or watched Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments or whatever, um... That might seem familiar to us, but first, before we talk about what it means, I tell that story just to help us appreciate and try to feel the weight of the fact that that happened. The Bible tells miraculous stories, but that's not the only type of story that it tells. I think we have this this notion that in the Bible there's like angels popping up behind every rock, right? And like every day there's crazy magic stuff happening. And that's not really how the Bible works. There are a couple of points in biblical history where we see a great deal of God's miraculous movement. Here, in the Exodus, coming into the Promised Land and, and taking the Promised Land. And then in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, much later, and then surrounding the ministry of Jesus. 
But in between, while there are miracles, they're very rare, right? And I say that because um, these events were not normal for the people who were experiencing them. Um, we, the way we think about the Bible, we tend, I think, to think that people are just going to be like, oh, swarms of locusts and water turning to blood, you know, it must be Tuesday. But that is not, that is not how these people experienced the, these things. They would have experienced them just like you would have. So just imagine, right, what it would be like to be in the midst of that. that, that the horror of watching the rock river turn to blood and insects swarming and hail falling and being in the middle of that. The, the terror um, of watching your leader, right, like the president or whoever, right? Moses is demanding something of him and he keeps saying no and these terrible things keep happening. The despair and desolation that you'd have to feel by the end of this. There's a striking moment near the end of the plagues when we get a glimpse of how it felt for those people in Egypt. In Exodus 10, it says, Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man snare you? Let the people go so they may worship the Lord your God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? That's what they're confronting, right? This apocalyptic defeat that's going to take a generation to recover from. And that all happened. God did that. And that's hard in some ways and scary in some ways. I point that out because I think the more we really appreciate this story that the Bible tells, the more we feel this whole jumble of emotions, this complicated set of feelings of wonder and horror and awe and questions. I mean, do you feel some of that when you, when you sit and picture that happening? In the face of that, what I want to do with this story of the plagues is just suggest two ideas about God that it teaches us and that we sometimes need to hear. Two ideas about God, each of which has two sides. Two ideas, each with two sides. The first idea is about God's judgment. And that is not where I'd love to like jump in in a Sunday morning sermon. But um, this is really probably the biggest thing this story confronts us with, is the idea of God's judgment. And I want to suggest that it reminds us that God's judgment is real, but escapable. God's judgment is real, but escapable. It's important first to recognize that these plagues are, in a real sense, about judging Egypt's sin. They're also about delivering Israel, but God makes very clear that this is meant as a judgment for the evils of Egypt. So like in Exodus 7, 4, he says, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. And with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my division, my people, the Israelites. The Bible regularly insists that God judges the world for its evils. But as we wrestle with that, I want to suggest that part of the tension we feel is because we view the world from the wrong angle. Which is to say, so first of all, we... We read this story, and it strikes us as exceptional, right? All this crazy, terrible stuff happening to Egypt. Um, what's normal for us, right, is for people and nations to just kind of go about their business and kind of nothing bad to happen. Um, and it's, it's, Egypt is a bad nation, right? Like, in, you know, I mean, it's being judged for a sin, but it's not viewed as somehow remarkably worse than other bad nations in its world or in our world. I mean, there's a real part of me that just feels like... Um, given that the primary sin of Egypt is enslaving, you know, a group of people because of its ethnicity, like, we got to have a soberness when we come to this story about our own history, right? So Egypt is not somehow crazy worse than other nations in history, but we see evil, we see Egypt's evil punished in this very direct way, right, that other nations aren't. 
destruction rains down on their head. And because of that, I think we feel like this seems unfair to us. You know, what's, what's going on? How can God do this? And that's where I want to suggest that we need to step back for a minute and talk about how judgment works in the Bible. Because really in the Bible, there's three types of judgment that are happening for sin. The first one is what I'm going to call natural judgment, which is to say that sin just has some natural consequences in the world. We recognize that, right? You, you, you're mean to somebody, and then they try to be mean to you back. That's a natural consequence of sin. That um, you um, make bad choices in your life, and there's some consequences that you have to feel as a result of that, right? So that's, that's a part of judgment on sin. That's natural judgment. And then secondly, in Scripture, there's final judgment. That scripture also says there's a final ultimate judgment that God will pass on the world. Jesus actually talks a lot about final judgment. So like in Matthew 25, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. And then as that story goes on, Jesus talks about the judgment that he passes there. So natural judgment and final judgment in Scripture, right? And then there's this third category that's kind of strange, and that's what I'm going to call historical judgment. Historical judgment. Which is to say that sometimes in the Bible, like in this story, we see these kind of massive cataclysmic judgments that aren't just natural judgment, right? But they seem to break into history. And um, so like Sodom and Gomorrah, that happens, or the destruction of Jerusalem, or with Egypt here. And these are the things that unsettle us, because, um, because we read them and we don't know what to do with them. And so what I want to suggest is that when we encounter these stories of historical judgment, like this one, the way to think about them is that in a sense they are God's final judgment breaking into history. They're a manifestation of God's final judgment in a limited way in the midst of of history, which is to say that the Egypt, that the, the judgment that falls on Egypt is not sort of unthinkable. It simply represents the sort of judgment that comes normally at the end of God's story rather than in the middle. See, I think what happens is that we make certain bad choices or, um, or sins and we measure them by only their natural consequences. Right? I think that's how people measure stuff in life. They, they, they recognize those natural consequences, but they think that sin is really only measured by that. That that's sort of like how bad sin is. And the problem with that is that while those natural consequences are real, they are imperfect, and they are often not in keeping with the, the, the measure of the sin. Right? Like, like, yeah, this crooked businessman might have to, like, flee the country and lose his family, right? But he's still got his yacht in the Caribbean and all the cocktails he needs to drown his sorrows, right? That doesn't actually adequately measure his sin. Um, we take that imperfect, fleeting, natural judgment, and then we think that that's the measure of sin. But Scripture's argument is that our sins are much worse than we believe. That all of our sins are, right? Again, we're not talking about those people out there when we talk about sin. Our little disobedience and respectable sins and the stuff we keep hidden in our hearts and our private moments. That our unkind words and selfishness and lack of care for other people. That those things, scripture says, um, are really much worse than we think. They're the things that destroyed the world. And scripture says those things are actually deserving of God's final judgment with all of the fire and fury that comes with that in the Bible. 
and that the purpose of these historical judgments is not to say, look at Egypt, those really bad people there, it's a good thing we're not like them, but rather it's to give us a picture that should give us a seriousness about all of our sin, to give us an appreciation of the kind of judgment that all of us deserve. That is a hard place to start, right? Like I said, I know that God's judgment is not the place I want to start with this. So let me say two more things about that. One is that as much as I am right there with you in feeling the weightiness of that, because that's hard, um, maybe we need it to be a little harder than we like to make it. Because maybe that's the only way we appreciate the seriousness of how we treat people and how we live in the world. It is easy for me to hurt people or behave selfishly or just be lazy, right, and just let things be bad in the world. Um, It's easy for me to act like my kinds of sins aren't a big deal. And it's when I confront things like this, those realities of God's judgment, that I am sort of reminded that I need to view those things with their proper seriousness, that I need to recognize the gravity of the hurt that I do to people. It's in the light of the fires of God's judgment that we get a more accurate sense of our sin. But the second thing we need to say about that, and this is important, this is the other side of that reality, is that in Scripture, while God's judgment is real, it is also always escapable. God's judgment is ultimately escapable. Our fullest sense of judgment, um, and it being escapable in this text, actually rests in what we're going to talk about next week. So there's a little bit of a placeholder there, because in the Passover, we get this really clear picture. But I think we get a hint of the theme even this week. Um, In our story of the plagues, there is this thing that happens. The first couple of plagues are indiscriminate, which means that they hit everybody, Egyptians and Israelites alike. But starting with the third plague, there starts to actually be this distinction between the plagues. And and they start to strike Egypt, but not Israel. And so in chapter 8... Um, God warns of this plague of flies, and then he says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Then I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. So there's this region of Egypt called Goshen, right? And we don't know how big it is. It's not You know, Egypt's a big country, it's not that big, but it's certainly big enough for a couple hundred thousand Israelites to live and farm and, you know, and survive on. There's this region of the country, um, and when the hail and the locusts and the darkness come, they don't happen in Goshen. And here's the question that I have. um, Why on earth don't the Egyptians just all move to Goshen? (laughs) Like, I mean, it's, it's easy to miss in the story, but, um, but when your rivers are turning to blood and there's sheets of lightning and hail from falling from the sky, why don't you just go take a trip to live amongst the Israelites, right? And on the one hand, I don't want to press that question too far. Like I said, it's really the Passover next week that will highlight that escapability of judgment. Um, but it is worth remembering that. I mean, look, we have this idea um, in our age when we read the Old Testament that the that somehow Israel is about ethnic purity, right? That being an Israelite was about sort of Jewish ethnic purity. And that is not how the Old Testament treats it. While the core of the promise is to Abraham and his descendants, it is normal throughout the Old Testament for people to come into Israel, right? Moses' wife Zipporah is not an Israelite, and she, you know, she becomes an Israelite. Um, In 
already in Exodus. We'll discuss it in a minute, but as Israel leaves Egypt, a bunch of Egyptians come out with them and join the nation of Israel. And that's normal throughout the Old Testament, right? So the reality is, even in a story like this one, the option's always there for the Egyptians to come and say, let's, let's just join Israel here in the midst of this thing and be delivered from that judgment. It is escapable in this story. And that's the thing we have to realize at our place in God's story, too. When we talk about God's judgment, on the one hand, it is something that all of us deserve. It's not something just for people out there. But on the other hand, um, I mean, being a Christian does not mean you don't deserve God's judgment, right? In fact, if you think that, you're, you're not being a Christian. Being a Christian means you acknowledge that and say, Lord, forgive my sins and cover them and welcome me into your people and let your judgment pass over me. That's the emphasis of Jesus in like John 5, for example. It's another place where he's discussing his judgment and how he will come in judgment of the world. But he says in 524, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes me, who sent, him who sent me, has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. So all of us are faced with that reality of God's judgment. But all of us in Jesus are also we're invited into the land of Goshen, right? We're invited to be a part of God's people to find shelter in Jesus from our storm. By trusting in Jesus and putting our faith in the God who sent him, he says, that judgment will pass over us. And I think we all deep down have a sense of our need for that. I think all of us, right? Even when we kind of like hate that picture of judgment in the Bible— we have this niggling recognition that there are parts of us that are darker than we like to admit. That there are corners of our hearts and minds that are much darker than we acknowledge. And maybe that's why we struggle with judgment so much. Because even though we would deny it consciously, some part of it feels the weight that maybe we deny that. But part of the invitation of scripture is for us to boldly confront first the truth about ourselves, to boldly look it in the face and say, yeah, those dark places in me do exist, and then to hide ourselves in Jesus in response, to rejoice in the fact that Jesus has delivered us from that judgment. He provides a shelter for us. So, that's God's judgment in the way that this story reflects it, and then there's another theme about God that is also really important to see. And that is about God's power, which is that God's power is both supreme and saving. God's power is both supreme and saving. On the one hand, while this is a story about judgment, this is also a story that is meant to highlight the supremacy of God, to show forth his power. Um, we can see it in the way that Moses and Aaron confront the magicians. You, you heard about them in the part of the story that Bob read. But early on, Moses does the first couple signs, and it says that the magicians copy them. So like in Exodus 7.22, But the Egyptian magi magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So first of all, it's worth asking what that means, right? I think because of the world that we live in, our assumption when it says that there's magicians doing this by their secret arts is that they're magicians like, like David Copperfield, right? Or David Blaine or something. And so what they're doing is tricks to, to try to fake duplicating God's actions. And that might be the case. It also might be the case that the magicians are wielding real power that's opposed to God. 
The Bible absolutely believes that there are spiritual forces that are at work in the world, and it may well also be that the Egyptians are drawing on those dark spiritual forces um, as they oppose it. But that doesn't actually matter in our text, because there's a couple of things that, that the magicians stand in for. One is that they represent Pharaoh's power, right? And, and just kind of his might. And secondly, they represent the power of the Egyptian kind of gods and the beings that they worship, that they're supposedly getting us from. And there's a couple things to notice about that. First is that even though by their power they're able to duplicate the first couple of floods or of plagues, there's kind of an irony in the text, right? Because so Moses turns water to blood all across Egypt, and the magicians are like, oh, we can do that too. Here's some more blood, right? Moses creates frogs, and the magicians are like, oh, we can make some more frogs. But that's not a help to Egypt, right? Like, that's only making things worse. And even in those first few plagues that they duplicate, Pharaoh has to come to Moses and plead with Moses to go to his God to get the plagues to end, right? The magicians aren't actually able to stand against God. They're just able to kind of mimic him. And it only lasts for the first two plagues. By the third plague, the magicians are spent. So in Exodus 8, when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals and everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Relatively early in this story, the magicians just have to give up and say, No, this, this is something bigger than us. And in fact, but later they pop up again, and it makes clear they're completely beaten. When the boils afflict Egypt, it says in chapter 9, The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and all, on all the Egyptians. So Egypt has these supernatural powers that seem to stand behind it, and they're being humiliated. That's also happening in this story on a deeper level. Um, let me put up that list of the plagues again. And here's my question for you. Why these plagues, right? Why are these the ten things that happen to Egypt? Why not like tornadoes or rats or door-to-door salesmen or what, whatever other plague that God is going to bring? Like, I feel like we read this story and we imagine God is like this angry 12-year-old, right? And he's just like, oh yeah, Egypt, well, well we're going to blood and, and, you know, and frogs and, and gnats, you know, and he's just like coming up with these random bad things that are going to happen. But people have long noted that there's something more going on with these plagues. Um, they're not just random, but they really seem to specifically be targeting Egypt's gods. So here's one way of summarizing that, and there's lots of discussion about how exactly to assign this. But the first plague's on the Nile, and the Egyptians view the Nile itself as divine, and there's a bunch of gods that are connected to the Nile, like Hapi, for example, is the one I put up there, who's um, like the god of the source of the Nile, from which it flows, right? And you think about it symbolically, what is happening when this, this river that flows out of this Egyptian god is suddenly turned to blood, right? That looks a lot like the god has just been killed. Um, and then come the frogs, right? And one of Egypt's goddesses, Hecate, was frog-headed and associated with fertility, which frogs were, and which, you know, these multiplying frogs across the land seem to call out. And then there's gnats. It stresses that the dirt itself is transformed into these gnats. And, you know, so Geb is the god of the earth and the dust. And Kepri creates all the animals and is especially associated with insects and has the head of a bug. And God brings this plague of bugs across the land. And Hathor represents fertility and prosperity and has the head of a bull and the livestock are struck. And I'm not going to, you know, it keeps going like that. 
you know, finally at the end, Ra, one of the most famous of Egypt's gods, right? The god of the sun is blotted out from the sky. And then in the final plague, Pharaoh himself, who is also pictured as divine and as a god of Egypt, and his bloodline is seen as divine and as the gods of Egypt, um, has his own firstborn child struck down. In these plagues, God is in a sense going to war with the whole pantheon of Egypt. He's taking these things associated with Egypt's gods, and in each case he's saying, no, this is mine, <laughs> right? He's, he's laying claim to each of those things. That's actually how the Bible in the Old Testament discusses God. We have this idea of monotheism, you know that word, which means that there is only one God. And in our world, when people talk about monotheism, they talk about it kind of philosophically. Like, let me like, make an argument for why other gods don't exist. But the Old Testament doesn't really do that. It argues there's one God, but the way it proves it is just by saying he is so supremely powerful in everything and over everything that there's not room for any other gods to compete with him. And I think it does that because it recognizes something about our experiences. We aren't—our questions about the world aren't really just abstract, like, is there more than one God that exists kind of questions. Our questions come out of places of of fear and of anxiety— We're afraid of these powers that we see in the world. And we're afraid of Egypt's might. And so God's response is not to say, well, technically I'm the only God that that exists, right? His response is to come in power and demonstrate in that power that he reigns supreme over all things. And in the face of that fear, I think we need that kind of reality. That vision of God who is on the throne making a mockery of all the powers that would oppose him, whether it's Ra and Pharaoh or whether it's the powers in our world. His response is always to say, I am greater than those things. At the same time, we also need to recognize that God's power is not just about showing how big he is. God, in his power, is working two specific purposes. One of them is to deliver Israel, but the other one is also so that the Egyptians might come to know him. This is actually a major theme in the text. It's easy to overlook. So right at the beginning, here's how God explains his mission. He says, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. So God's working in this way to bring out Israel, but also so that the Egyptians might know that he is God. And all through the story, over and over, this theme is repeated. Let me give you just some of them, right? Moses tells Pharaoh that this is God's purpose in the first plague. He says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. Moses ends the second plague for the same reason. He says, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there's no one like the Lord our God. Um, God differentiates between Egypt and Goshen, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am on in this land. He rains down hail, so that you may know there's no one like me in the earth. He ends the hail um, for the same reason, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Over and over, part of what God says he's doing is trying to bring Egypt to know that he is the Lord. To reveal himself to them. I stress that because as much as God's judgment and power are on display in this text, they seem to have a missionary purpose in it too. The plagues are meant to call Egypt, as well as Israel, to come to know the living God. And here's the thing, to some extent, that happens in the text too. 
So just a couple of hints. So like at the point where Moses threatens hail, he actually warns that it's coming to Pharaoh's officials, and he tells them to take their livestock inside. And we find out in Exodus 9, it says, those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but those who ignored the words of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field, right? So, so suddenly, some of Pharaoh's high-up officials in the land, even, are starting to fear the word of the Lord and believe in him. All across Egypt, people start to recognize it. By the end, in, verse, or in chapter 11, we're told that the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. And then this is jumping ahead a little bit in our story. But I mentioned this already. Um, I think this is remarkable and often overlooked. But if you jump to Exodus 12, here's how the actual exit from Egypt is recorded. It says, The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men and foot, besides women and children, and many other people went up with them. Also large droves of livestock. That many other people went up with them. Other translations would say a great mixed multitude. And that Hebrew word for mixed multitude means foreigners, right? A great horde of foreigners, of Egyptians and others living in Egypt, leave Egypt with Israel. And the very next thing that happens in Exodus 12 is instructions for how those people become a part of God's people in Israel, right? Which is to say that God comes to make himself known in these plagues, and as the Egyptians see God coming in judgment and power, many of them turn and believe in the Lord and become a part of God's people. God is powerful and mighty, but the emphasis of Scripture is that he is especially mighty to save. The purpose to which he ultimately turns his power is salvation. That should remind us that when we think about God, there should be, in a sense, a sort of priority that we give to his work of salvation. A priority to his work of salvation. Now, here's what I mean, and I want to be careful in how I express this, right? So God both judges and saves in Scripture. Those are both true, and you cannot believe the Bible and deny, you know, half of that, right? Like, those are both realities. But God's judgment in Scripture is always viewed as the result of just the natural course of things which is to say that we in our sin rebel against God and go to war with heaven, and God's judgment is just the expected outcome of that, right? God is holy and righteous and will judge that sin. The remarkable part of the story of Scripture is that God doesn't only judge. Instead, he is also at work for the salvation of the world. He's rescuing people and saving them from their sin and covering over their evil and passing over them in judgment. And none of that is the natural result of the story, right? That, that is God in his free grace choosing to do that instead. And even God's judgment in this story exists in part to serve that purpose of salvation. That it is God's judgment coming on Egypt that makes him known and draws some of them to believe in him. Even in our lives, it's often God's judgment, right? The consequences of our sin as we experience them that begin to draw us to believe in and trust in Christ. And that means that we see God's power on display. Our primary response should be joy, not just fear. There is an appropriate fearfulness we should get from this story, right? When you imagine God coming in power on Egypt, there is a sort of respect and fear we should feel, but even that fear should drive us towards joy in the fact that God is mighty to save. God's power 
is the foundation for our salvation. When we see the power of sin, and when we feel like Satan is sifting us, and when we feel like our flesh is weak, in those moments, what we need is a vision of God who is far greater than those things, who is greater and subdues his enemies. Salvation is not something we work for ourselves. While we are called to trust and seek and grow, God is the one at work in us. And when, that means that we need to hope in the power of his work. Like when you face temptation, right? I mean, look, temptation might feel stronger than you. And that's because it is stronger than you. But it is not stronger than the Lord who is working in you. And you can hope in that as you stand against temptation because he is powerful to help you. When you face pain and struggle in life and in the world, and it feels like it's beating you down. I mean, look, people tell you God doesn't give you more than you can handle, right? Like, you've all heard that. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible absolutely says that God will give you more than you can handle. So, like, in 2 Corinthians, this is how Paul describes his ministry. He says, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure it, so that we despaired of life itself. Paul says he's way beyond what he can handle, but, he says, here's the reason, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Which is to say that God absolutely will let us face more than we can handle, but never more than he can handle. That our hope in the face of the struggles and trials of this world is to look to his great power, right? To see Egypt in all its glory and Egypt's gods and all their terror arrayed against him and the way he just strikes them down and to recognize that same power is what confronts the things that are battering us down. The goal of God in raining down these plagues on Egypt was to demonstrate that power. That he faces off against Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. He faces off against this whole system of belief that people see as powerful and terrifying. And he overcomes them. He breaks them. By the end of this, Pharaoh is defeated. The goal of God in that is to demonstrate his power. But the reason that is his goal... The reason he is demonstrating his power is because he means it as a comfort and encouragement to us. In the defeat of Pharaoh, we see that hope of the defeat of all of our enemies in Jesus Christ. That our sin is defeated and the world in all of its fury is defeated. And Satan and death itself are defeated by the power of God that is at work here. That is the reality that we're called to walk into in our lives. To trust in God's mighty power for our salvation. Because he's working that kind of salvation, that same kind of exodus for us who believe in him. Let's pray. Lord, I both am moved by your greatness and humbled. And also moved to hope in that greatness. Lord, be at work in our hearts. Deliver us from all that would ensnare us and bring us into a place of hope and trust in your great power. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.